It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm Julia Gillard, and you're listening to a podcast of one's own. Angela Rayner is the deputy leader of the British Labor Party. She has a remarkable life story, which she shared with me at a live event hosted by the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. Fortunately, we recorded that conversation and here it is for you. Angela not only spoke to me about her own life, but we talk generally about the barriers women face on the political front line, and we explored what a general election in the United Kingdom will mean for women. I am sure you will enjoy this conversation. Now, Angela, I'm going to start at the very beginning because it's a very good place to start. Uh, You were born in Stockport in Greater Manchester in 1980, and you grew up on a council estate, and you've talked in the past about the fact that your mother was illiterate and there was a risk that you could have been taken into care. Can you talk to us about what your life was like then? Yeah, sure. I mean, I thought, first of all, my vex is that I grew up on Bridgehall Estate, which was like one of the roughest estates in Stockport, and I was doing really well for a while as being like one of the most fantastic things that's come off our estate, and then Phil Foden. Um, <laughs> came along at the same time so now I'm not super not cool on Bridge of the anymore because I've got Man City Premier football player as well but they'll begrudge that and it, it shows the talent that you can get actually on estates like mine but yeah I grew up in Stockport on on this council estate and the police put a police station at the end of the estate during my time on there because it was just it was considered a no-go zone for authorities so I grew up in a place where authorities do things to you. You're not one of them. You're not a doctor. You're not police. You're not fire. You're not an ambulance. You're not nurses or anything like that. You're the people that are controlled by them. And I know it's implied right from the beginning of the get-go, really, from when I was born. And because my mum couldn't read all right, um, when I went into school, I wasn't, I didn't even know the term at the time, but I wasn't school ready because I hadn't seen a book before that. You know, we didn't, we didn't have things like that in our house. And it wasn't because my mum didn't want to look after us. I want to make that point. My mum's an amazing person and she tries her best. But my mum's always said to us she could only love one person at the time. That was my dad. (laughs) So she was very much a woman of her time and didn't have the resources to give us anything to grow up into. So, you know, I went to school. The free school meal that I got at lunchtime was my meal. That was my meal for the day. Everything that my mum cooked in the evening was in the deep fat fryer. Everything went in it. Chips, chips and sausage chips, crispy pancakes, everything. I thought I was going to get mad cow's disease because I was convinced the stuff that we had when we were younger was definitely in that category. So yeah, so it's a tough upbringing, but there was a sense of community in our community as well. And even now when I go on my estate, they see me as a hybrid because I'm one of them, but I'm also one of them, i.e. authority. 
And it's strange when you haven't grown up in, in those kind of backgrounds, it's really hard to understand why people don't feel like people in positions of power are there for them. It is very much an us and them feeling. They feel like they're not the society that these people represent. And I, I kind of understand that and I kind of understand why why people don't access services in, in that way because it's very easy, I think, for me to get where other people are coming from in that respect because of the way I was brought up and the, the circumstances of that. It also gives me an insight into understanding and totally appreciating public services and interventions that happened that did keep me with my mum. So the sense of my nana who worked three jobs, who did everything, if we needed something, my nana would get it. I went to my nan's once a week for a bath because she lived in a high rise flat. So she had hot water, we didn't, we had an immersion eater and she didn't touch that because it was too expensive. And the bath, there'd be a rank order for that bath as well. My brother would go in it first, then me and my sister and then my mum would use the same bath water. It was just, it, that's how it was for us growing up. I think it gives you a sense of the struggle that people go to to keep their families together, but also the interventions from the youth club that I used to go to and I used to be able to get, you know, biscuits from them and that was the best thing, but they'd chat to me and I didn't realise they were outreaching for children for my disadvantage. I thought this is a bus that's giving me biscuits and adults that want to listen to me because my dad's favourite quote was, kids should be seen and not heard, so we never really got that interaction growing up. So those inter interventions and interactions that I had, whether that's through my childhood or whether that's when I became a young mum at 16, really helped get me where I am today. And without them, I wouldn't be able to be in front of you today and speak to you in the way that I have. And that sense of a community raises children and it's all our responsibility, something that's really strong to me. I didn't ask to be born into the life that I was asked to be born into and children don't, but the taxpayers paid for services that helped me, my brother and sister, who are all taxpayers of today and are doing great things in our communities. Uh, it turned it around, the social mobility. My mum wasn't given those opportunities. Her mum wasn't given those opportunities. And that, that pattern of deprivation was continuing in my family. It was only those interventions that really helped me and hence why I'm so passionate about what I do today and making sure we have those interventions for tomorrow because the Angela Rainers of today haven't got the opportunities that I was afforded and I'm very aware of that. And in all of that you referred to how your mother saw her role but were you conscious as a girl growing up in that environment that there was differential treatment of boys and girls? Very much so. I mean I wasn't the oldest sibling. I've got a younger sister and an older brother my older brother didn't have to deal with my mum's bipolar, didn't have to deal with the challenges that we faced in the house because he was a boy and boys don't do that. You know, the, all of those other tasks that were considered my mum's tasks. I, I mentioned my nana. I didn't mention a granddad. I didn't mention my dad. It was some women that had to deal with this. So right from an early age, I was classed as the eldest daughter. So therefore it was my job to look after my mum. It was my job to help my nana, it was my job to help with the shopping and, and, and think cleaning and stuff like that. So yeah, it was very much impressed from an early age. And then my career's advice was to do a nursery nurse. So, you know, it wasn't a, a career's advice that would see me in a role that wasn't gender specific. And then, hey, I ended up a home carer, which is a very gender specific role and predominantly female. And then got me equal pay, got my career structure, and loads of guys wanted to do that job now. Great stuff. Well, yeah, that's how it was seen in them days. And yeah, I very much implied, I think social class was as well. I think I can't speak to you today about 
gender issues without also talking about one thing that I think really impacts on me is, is, is our, our class system. And it impacted on me right from an early age. And I think it still impacts on me today. So both gender has an issue, but I also think class is still a very big issue in this country. And you referred to leaving school at, well, I think you referred to becoming pregnant at 16. And as a result, you left school at 16. I mean, if I'd met you then and said to you, what do you think the rest of your life would be like? Yeah. You know, what, what were you thinking then as a 16 year old about to be a young mum? about what the future was going to hold. Yeah, I mean, I picked up what GCSEs had got. None of them were of a particular grade because I spent a lot of time out of school in my, my last final years. I went seven months pregnant and literally everybody looked at me and gasped at me as I walked to, to collect what, what results I had. And I remember I actually had my son and I didn't ask for gas and air and I was very nervous when I was in labour with him because the midwife had said I've got a daughter your age have you done your GCSEs and kind of made me feel really uncomfortable and I didn't want people to think that I couldn't cope so I literally had my first son without any drugs at all I made up for it after that with my others <laughs> but that's how how far I've travelled from where I was I just wanted to prove to people that I could do it and that I was good at what I was doing so for me at 16 it was about making sure that I could get a job I wanted to give my son everything that I didn't have. I wanted to be the parent that my parents couldn't be for me. When I had Ryan, he gave me a sense of purpose. I think if I didn't have Ryan, I think I would have took a different path because I was kind of, I didn't have any self-respect for me when I was that age. I, I didn't think anyone cared about me and I didn't really care about myself as a teenager. And I see so many teenagers today who feel like that. They don't have any self-worth for themselves and I just want to make them... I want them to make them feel like you're amazing. You're the last. I go to schools all the time and I'm like, you're amazing. There's only ever one of you, you know, and I'm trying to instill that resilience in them and that sense of self and that sense of pride in who they were. But if I'm honest, at that age, I didn't think that I had any self-worth and it gave me the opportunity then to think, right, I'm just going to get a job because I don't want people to think that I'm not a good mum. I'm going to make sure that my house is always tidy. I literally would like, with a dustpan and brush, like three o'clock in the morning and cleaning the house. I was obsessed with making my house look amazing. I'd get my income support and I'd travel six miles, I'd walk six miles just so that I could go to the posh part of Stockport in Bramall to the charity shops there. And I'd feel like it was Christmas if I got Ryan something really nice to wear from the charity shop. Like yeah, that was like a big moment for me. I remember that feeling of I've accomplished something because my son's going to wear something really smart and it's going to prove that I'm a good mum. And it was only when I went to Shorestart that I realised that the cuddles and the hugs and the reading and the, the, the nourishment that I didn't get that was absent for me. I wasn't giving my son, I was doing the practical things. I was changing his nappy. I was making sure he was, you know, clean, tidy, making sure the house is clean, I was making sure he's fed. But the emotional support was missing from me. And it was only when I went to Shorts that I was like, oh my God, I don't tell my son I love him. I don't, mm. I don't cuddle him. And it was because my parents didn't do that for me, but it was quite normal. Like you just feed them, you clothe them, you, you tidy up after them. You, but it was all practical and not no emotional connection. I've, I've seen people who are from very affluent backgrounds who have not had that emotional connection either. And I think emotional nourishment of young people is critical and important as well. And I didn't realize I was absent of that until I went to Shorestart and realized that I was having the same pattern with my son. And you spoke before about going into being a care worker and you ended up working your way through and being involved in the union and the rest has uh, taken you to where you are now. But where in that journey was the sort of 
birth of ambition, of passion, of what's taken you to this position as deputy leader? I mean, there must have been, was it gradual in the sense of you did this bit and then you thought I can do the next bit? Or was there a sort of moment where you thought, I know where I come from and I am so desperate to change that for other people that I'm definitely going to aim high? Any of my roles that I've been lucky and fortunate to have is I've never believed that that's where I wanted to be. I've done it to get something for the people that I was representing. So when I was a home help, I represented my clients, my service users, and I got very involved in making sure that we delivered the best care we could for them. And then that's how I got involved in the union. Then when I was in the union, I was representing people again. And I've kind of, I looked after my mum for a long time as a Samaritan, I was the youngest Samaritan in the Northwest. I learned British Sign Language for, for fun because I thought it'd be really interesting to do. Then I had a blind child. I was like, God, that didn't work. <laughs> I'm not learning Braille. <laughs> so, but um, all, all throughout my career, it's been about fighting for the underdog. It's been about fighting for people. And it's kind of, I get something positive out of feeling like I've, I've done something for somebody else. And I think it must come back from when I looked after my mum. It's sort of inbred into me that I look after. So therefore, everything that I've done, whether it's a union, representing people there, I've just kind of thought like, you deserve better than that. I'm going to I'm going to fight for that. I'm going to give you what you deserve because I value people. I'm a people person. I hate doing the legislation and reading. It's not my thing. I like the people. I like the microphone. I like the stage. And I like winning an argument. That's kind of the best. I'm vocational. I'm not academic. That's one thing I've learned. There's still a shift, though, isn't there, between that satisfaction, which I can well and truly understand, and really driving at systemic change. And MPs, of course, do both. You get yeah. people who come and see you and they've got a problem with, you know, their welfare benefit or whatever, and you're able to sort that out for them, and that does feel great. But at some point, it must have transferred from that, you know, I want to help this individual and this individual and this individual into what can I do that would cut through and make a difference yeah. for everyone. When did that first come to you? I think it's because other people kind of put me in those places as well. So when I was fighting for equal pay for, for the care workers that I worked alongside, you know, I became the union rep overnight because I was the one that spoke out all the time. And the girls who were a lot older than me who I worked alongside were like, Angie, you need to be our union rep. And I'm like, what's a trade union? And then I kind of had to deal with local government at a time where there were significant courts. I had to learn about arms life management organisations, section 31, section 35. I was home help. I didn't, I didn't have any GC. I literally had to go in the room and, and learn all this stuff on my feet. And I kind of had a gift for it. I kind of un could work a room and I knew it's like when you go in a pub, you know, and it's going to kick off. I kind of, <laughs> kind of had a feel for what was going on. I thought this is, I'm, there's some interest in this. And then I realised that in order to change things on the ground, you have to manoeuvre upstream. So you can deal with individual issues and they're really important and, and they can branch off into amazing things. But why don't I deal with why we're not given the time to do the care that we want to do? If, what do I need to do for that? Right, I'm in the boardroom with management. I'm getting somewhere, but management have got management above them. Where do I go with that? And then I kind of swam upstream and it's the same with where I am today in politics, the future of work. The trade unions gave me a voice. It gave me a family that I thought I belonged to. They accepted me for what I was. In fact, they encouraged me to be disruptive. I was like, this is great, this works for me. If you're ADHD, being a trade union shop steward is the best place for you. So, and, and then I kind of wanted to give something back to that movement that 
helped me because I saw it as a force for good. I saw what they were able to do in workplaces. I saw the improvements they made. I saw the social justice angle. And I thought, this is great. This is working for me. So now in, in my field now, the future of work is so important to me. That work that we've done on the New Deal for Working People is incredibly important for me. And the diversity champion that I've announced that we're doing about getting more people into politics from different backgrounds is incredibly important to me because it's about putting people in the right place who can make decisions that will change people's daily lives and help people on a much grander scale. I've just gone grander in what I want to achieve. And when Jeremy Corbyn became leader, I backed Jeremy Corbyn because, not because I'm a Corbynite, but because I became leader of the Labour Party and I thought, you know, you've been elected as leader of the Labour Party, you're trying to do a job and that's why I did it. I didn't do it because I thought that's going to give me a political career because it wasn't at the time, it was considered like career ending. But actually for me, I thought it was really important principle. So I've always done something that I thought instinctively is right. Whether it is or not, it's other people's opinion, but that's what I try and use as my sort of guide to what I do in life is kind of be a bit courageous. Don't take yourself too seriously because it's not about me and what I want. It's about trying to achieve things for others. And you referred earlier to the intersection of gender and class. And, you know, at the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, we talk a lot about intersectionality. You know, people come in whole packages. Many women would say uh, that one of the things they've lived with their whole lives is a sense of imposter syndrome and that there have been times when they've been quiet, when they look back on it and think, I should have spoken out, but I didn't have the confidence. I felt like I shouldn't have been there, that it wasn't my role. And as you describe the place you come from, that people sort of saw people with power as somewhere else, other people. And I would imagine in the face of those people with power were often silent rather than arguing with mm. them. And yet, as you describe your journey, you seem throughout it all to have had this confidence that I'm going to have my say and I'm going to make my point and I don't mind having an argument and I quite like winning an argument. So where does that come from? Because I think, you know, a lot of women in this audience and more broadly would say, I, I get it all, but I'm just not sure that I could, in the face of an authority figure who was arguing with me, summon that up. I would say it evolves. It's not going to happen overnight and at different periods I've challenged different things. So at times the way my father behaved, I got to a teenager and I, and I challenged him on the way our structure of our house was. I've challenged people, I challenged teachers at school when I thought they were wrong in something they were doing. I've always tested the boundary. I am that kid that would like literally just step over the line. <laughs> We've all, we've all got one in the family somewhere. Just pushes it. They're going to be the entrepreneurial kid, I'm telling you. But I've always been that one. My brother and sister were far more compliant than I was. So there's something inside me that kind of pushes the boundary. But then it's evolved over time. So I remember being a home help, has to go into the boardroom as a union rep very early on to speak to management about a restructure and the senior branch secretary asked me to go along, but I'm like, I can't go in that room. It's the director of social services, you know, hence social services. They're very important people, not like me. I'm like, I can't do that. I, I, I wouldn't know what to say. And you just sit, you can just sit there if you want, but we need you there because you're the shop steward and you, you're in that area sort of thing. So it's like, okay, so I go around, I go there incredibly nervous thinking I shouldn't be in this room. And within 15 minutes of listening to the directors, I was like, you, you don't have a Scooby-Doo 
knowledge about anything that we're doing. Mm. And it kind of then, I kind of had to speak out again. I'm like, well, actually, that's not true. That's not how we do our job. That wouldn't work with our job. And I kind of ended up like in the boardroom, the director coming up with a new rehabilitation service that delivered for, for social care and at the same time, giving the workers that I worked alongside a career structure and a pay rise. So I, I went from one minute feeling like I would have nothing to contribute to realising that actually I had the most to contribute in that room. I never thought I'd be deputy leader of the Labour Party. I never, ever thought that I would be picked, chosen by my peers to do that job. Uh, maybe that's a good thing that you, somebody's in that job that never wanted to sort of aspire to do it. It was people around me that said, you know, the question they asked me when they asked me to go for deputy leader was like, why aren't you going for leader? I never saw that in myself. Other people have seen things. So it's a mixture of both. You need good allies. And I always say to people, you know, if you haven't, the, the one thing you should do is tell somebody, whether it's random or family member or whoever, if there's somebody that impresses you about something they do, just tell them. We don't tell people enough about that, especially women and girls. We generally tend to need to know. So just make sure you give them a tap on the shoulder, a postcard. I get lovely postcards from women all over the world that will just send me a little note saying, oh, I think you're great when you do this. And I'm like, Hew. it just gives you that. It gives you that little bit of, especially if you've had a bad day, so I think that's a really good thing. So I think it's not one thing. I think it's a number of things. It's external people saying you're good at this and helping you, but it's also an internal evolution. So don't kick yourself if you don't think you've been the right feminist or you've done something that you think, ah, oh, I've let myself down a little bit there. Don't kick yourself. Just think, what am I going to do differently next time? What can I do today? And you should always apply for the job. That's the other thing I'll say. <laughs> That's the other problem that, 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 that we tend to have. Yeah, we'll look at a job description and we'll see a couple of things that we don't think we've got and then we'll say, well, that's not the job for me. Whereas generally, guys in the boardroom will see a couple of things that they can do on the job description and many of them they can't and they'll think, that is definitely my job. I can, yeah. I can wing the rest. So that's the only other thing I'd say right, in the capital feminism is that women tend to be really hard on ourselves and actually you should think, I'm going to go for it and try and push yourself to go for those things. There might be a few examples in British politics of men who have overestimated their ability to do a job. Um, yeah. Uh, you you talked about, talked about um, people sending you cards, women sending you cards, which you take heart from on some difficult days. And I do want to talk to you about a difficult thread of the, the life you live now. At the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, we do study the disproportionate violence and abuse that women in public life uh, face and this is you know absolutely uh, demonstrably capable of being shown by the evidence and you've had to face this very personally a man was arrested for threatening you you've had to cancel meetings for your own safety you've talked about installing security devices at home because of death and and, and rape threats what's it like living with that pressure and why do you think it is still as bad as that and so much worse for women? First of all, I'd say, unfortunately, across the board, which regardless of political party, women do get abuse more. I think women from black, Asian, minority, ethnic backgrounds get more abuse. And I think it's a patriarchy of how dare, like how dare a working class woman. I mean, most of the abuse that I get is she can't speak properly, state of her. Can you imagine her on the world stage? and? You know, some of that stuff is quite mild compared to some of the other stuff around death threats and stuff. But it's the audacity of people who have been pushed down 
to come up and try and have a voice. It's like there's an anger with it. How dare you think for these people? How dare you sit on TV and speak? Who do you think you are? Know your place. Mm. That's kind of how it sort of oozes across. And it is real anger. It's like real anger that comes out. I'm like, you don't don't even know me. Why, Why are you so angry? It escalates into some very serious dark threats that people say. Some people, when challenged by, I had a whole unit, I had couple of officers full-time dealing with the level of threats that I got at one point and my sons now know they live in that environment and it's really sad because it's quite normalized in my house now my children were very young when I became an MP and they're now teenagers and it's quite normalized to them the threats the abuse and I think that's quite sad and I see it as it's another part of what I have to up with I take it serious but I don't take it too serious that I don't carry on with my work because I think that's what they want to do they're so angry they want to silence people like me they want to silence people whether it's a conservative MP whether it's a a SNP MP whether it's a Labour MP it doesn't matter mainly women that get the abuse they want to silence us so there's a kind of like we try and support each other we try and support each other in parliament regardless of our politics in China get things done. I wish more of my colleagues, male colleagues in particular, would report hate abuse that they get. They generally tend to delete it. I've asked them. I've, I've been copied in like a group of gingers, so they'll copy me into like a really horrible abuse on the fact that you effing ginger, eff this, that, the other, how dare you? And then I'll be copied in with a group of other colleagues and I, I'm like, have you done anything? Like, no, we just deleted it, ignored it. It's like, it's really serious. Like we need to record these things so we have a clear picture of what's happening. And I think we need to do more with social media companies. I worry about young people today, the stuff that they see, like even in the argument from transgender now, I'm absolutely petrified about young people and they see that stuff and I'm like, this is awful. Like if you're a young woman or if you're a young man or you're, you're a young teenager and you're, you're looking for self-loathing, you're looking for, for validation or, or for what your views are, you're going to find something that's going to make you think that that's okay. And, and I, I really want to build the resilience up of the nation and I really worry about the opportunity for young people from my background to see this as a career for them because of what's happening. So I think we have to do something about that because 99% of the people are really wonderful. If I go out on the street, I get, keep going, and you're brilliant. If you don't like me, you generally tend to walk past. You don't go, oh, you're this, that. Mm. You wouldn't do it like you do on a keyboard warrior. It's usually keyboard online or whatever else. Most people don't come up to me in the street and give me a belly full. They'll tell me when they like me, but if they don't like me, they'll just carry on with the day and walk past me. We've got to do something to stop this minority of hate taking over and infecting our political life because unfortunately, the one thing I'm asked every time I go into a school now is how do you deal with the abuse you get? Like that should not be the first question that young people ask me when I go into school. And it, it, I agree with you so much. It is the anonymity of social media. I mean, I can, I can literally count on the fingers of one hand the number of people who were ever rude to me face to face who got, got in my face when I was a politician, you know, yeah. but the volume online, astronomical, but people in day to day... Uh, interactions. I mean, they might come up and have an argument with you about something, but in terms of being abusive, very, very rare. You you referred to this being an issue for women right across the parliament. Did you see anything gendered in the the treatment of Liz Truss, reflecting on her short 
time in office. Yeah. You know, clearly there were some very, very big issues at play, most particularly the economic policies and the quite visible and yeah. damaging impact that was having on the UK economy and uh, the threat to, to pension funds and the rest of it. So I'm certainly not putting the analysis that her downfall was all about gender. But did you see any aspects that were about gender? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, comments about how she looked and I, I've seen that throughout history. Even Theresa May got it as well. So Theresa May got it. She hasn't got children. So how could she be invested in young people? I mean, it's disgusting. You just wouldn't say that about any male politician, but she was considered weak or somehow or ineffective because she'd not had children. And I thought that was a disgraceful way to treat. And Theresa May was given the same treatment and so was Liz Truss. And I think almost, I've seen a little bit of this, is that women in positions of power almost feel like they have to be more masculine mm. to survive in it. So I try, like, I had a meeting last week and they said, well, I want to meet you on Saturday night. I'm like, you're not meeting me Saturday night because I've got my children. Like, normally, my, my staff will say, oh, we'll just say you've got something important. I'm like, no, say I'm having my children, that's important. Yeah. Because I think unless I create the space that says, yeah, I'm a professional woman, I do work more hours than I very rarely get a day off. But you know what? Having that time with my children that day is really important. I'm not going to say I've got something important on and not say what it is, as if I'm trying to say I'm at another meeting or I'm doing this. I'm going to say... I'm having my children on that day and I'm going to make sure that I have my children on that day and I have that time with them. Part of that is about trying to create that space. And I think sometimes women in the boardroom, women in positions of professionalism, we feel like we have to be masculine or we have to adhere to that. Otherwise, we'll be seen as weak or we'll fall behind. And there's a real culture of that in politics. There's a real culture of that for our staff in politics. If you don't work 24-7, then somehow it will reflect on me. And I hate that. Because I want my staff to have time off. I want them to, but when they're away from work, I don't want them to be working. I can't prevent them from working because what happens is they feel like if they're not on it because it's 24-7, I will fall behind and therefore I will look lesser of a politician. So it impacts on the whole culture of parliament in the way in which it operates because it expects so much, which is, it's not just a female issue. But actually, we should all be pushing back to say we're entitled to, which is part of my new deal, where you're entitled to switch off, you're entitled to a family life, you're entitled to these things. And at the moment, I think far too often that gets in the way of us being the powerhouse women that we want to be. I remember for like months, the school would ring me up every time there was a problem with my son. Yet my husband was the one who was the main phone number because he's there most of the time. And they'd ring me up even though he was the main. I said, have you rang... Mark and they'd be like no I was like why why I'm not I'm in London I'm working you need to ring Mark he's the number one contact oh okay well we just thought you're the mum so we'd ring you I'm like oh that's helpful and it was worse than that because like I go to the school gate and all the women at the school gate on the odd occasion I turn up they're like oh ain't your husband lovely eh picks the kids up he's so adorable and I'm like there is kids <laughs> so I think us women can be just as bad <laughs> I yeah. found it that we can be just as bad in terms, I mean, I used to, I, I love ironing, but I refuse to do it now just because I'm like, no, I'm not going to do it. But I think us women sometimes can be just as bad as, as playing those roles. And, and I think sometimes we've just got to push back even from our own unconscious bias about what our expectation is to create the space for us and to support other women in their roles as well. But I think all women in positions of power 
have it a lot more difficult and the focus on them is far different. If, if I'm having a pop, it's because I'm, I'm aggressive. If a, if a guy does it, it's always masculine, he's powerful, if, you know, so you have to watch, watch your tone because otherwise that'll, that'll get policed. And, you know, I beat an Etonian uh, Boris Johnson prime minister. So obviously it was because I was distracting him with my legs because I couldn't have done it because he's obviously academically gifted more than I am. He's obviously a greatness that I could never aspire to be being who I am and therefore, you know, they had to make up rubbish about somehow me getting my legs and distracting him with him, which has just left this awful thing for me every time I'm in the chamber now, because I just think, are they looking at me in that way? Because mm. I never go in the chamber thinking like that. I'm thinking, am I going to do a good job? I don't want to mess this up for the people I'm representing. I'm worried about making sure I'm focused on what I'm doing. It's like a boxer going in the ring, you know, I'm thinking, right, I've got to be on the A game. I'm not thinking, did my legs look good in this? <laughs> it's not my thoughts when I go in that chamber. However, unfortunately, a few times I've now thought, I hope you're not looking at me like that. And I've given them a <laughs> glance. Uh, I, I don't know if it, everybody remembers that completely disgusting scandal, but there was the uh, assertion that Angela was trying to distract Boris Johnson's sort of basic instinct style by crossing and uncrossing her legs. I always thought... It said something more about him than it did about you. Yeah. But it gave my two teenage boys something to joke about for the week. I was really worried. My ki my teenage boys, I was away with them. I was like, oh, I've got to tell them this. And I was really worried about how they were going to take it because the teenagers, it's, it's not easy for them having the mum in the spotlight as it is. And I'm like, look, there's this story coming out. It's a load of rubbish. Uh, apparently, I'm distracting. I, I can't even believe I had to tell this to my teenagers. <laughs> Apparently, I'm distracting the Prime Minister with my legs, deliberately. And, and the kids were like, Charlie, stop distracting me with your legs. After the whole weekend, I was, I was kind of like, thank God. That my teenage boys get it and then seeing how ridiculous this is and are not harmed by it. But it was, it's, it was the most ridiculous story. I, I was very surprised when, when that actually I thought there was no depth that they wouldn't go to, to be honest, on that no, one. No. Oh, this is pretty low blow stuff. I mean, not, notwithstanding, if anyone's been near the chamber, you'll see this is huge, big chest there, so you can't see anything beyond it anyway. So it was factually impossible unless I was kind of flipping my legs up in it. <laughs> the story should have died just literally on the little bit of journalistic research, but hey-ho. <laughs> journalistic research we could do a whole other hour on that um, looking forward from where we are now to the next election in the UK I want to talk to you about how much of a role you think women will play in that election as candidates and in terms of the policy issues that are at the forefront Professor Rosie Campbell the director of our institute does a lot of research on on voting trends and her research shows that women are the average voter because Women are a narrow majority of the population, so there are slightly more women than there are men. Because women tend to live longer and older people vote more consistently than younger people, it actually all means that the average voter, the most likely voter, is a woman. And in 2017, the research shows that uh, the women voters swung very strongly to Labor. So how much time do you and the Labor team think about this? Do you think about analysing the women's vote, what policy issues might matter for the women's vote, the presentation of women candidates? How much of that is on your mind? 
I think it's improved because of things like Labour Women's Network and our push for all women shortlists and having more women in Parliament. I think that's been one of the biggest. And I, I'm an absolute believer in if there isn't a person that looks like recruits like, and if there's nobody that looks like you, then you kind of don't feel like you fit in. You have to kind of drag people in. And once you get Parliament that is more diverse, which hence why I'm I'm pushing on the diversity champion and doing that piece of work is because I want more diverse. You don't want just me. Posh people are good in there as well, by the way. We need academics in there. They're not saying that you need a load of angerainers or you need a load of certain people. You need the diversity and therefore you need to be finding people that are not there. And that's hard to recruit them into your, into your place. And then when they're there, they open up the horizon of issues that your bias can't see. And we all have unconscious biases. We all have them. Even when we feel like we're the most enlightened, we do. I have them. Everybody does. So having that diverse team, having people in there, I think is the number one thing that Labour's done to champion more for women's rights and equality because we've got more women in there and we've had more people from diverse backgrounds who can challenge our unconscious bias in the way that we've put over our policy agenda. We've got the, the mother of the house, as we call her, Harriet Harman, who's been pushing forward on these issues for, for many years and decades. And you kind of get aspired by the parliamentarians that come before us who have done that work and we're taking that baton forward, but we've got to do it permeating, not just from central government, but across all political and all power bases. It's just, I think representation is incredibly important. And I think that's the number one thing that Labour did to make us more appealing to mm -hmm. other people because you can't just be one group that looks and sounds the same. Your strength is in your diversity. I don't do it because I think, oh, well, we've got to have 50% that, or we've got to have a certain amount of black, Asian, minority, ethnic people. It's not a number or a tick box for me. I actually believe our strength will come from being more diverse and we will have better policies and we will win as a result of that because if you've not got that in the room, then you're losing out massively and you're disconnecting from a whole group of people that you're not intentionally doing it, but you are doing it. So I'm really pushing Labour to continue on that path because I think that's the path to victory. We will not have a solid policy platform. We will not have ambassadors that will drive it forward if we don't have that diversity, in my opinion. It, that has to come as part of that programme. Absolutely agree. Now, I want to uh, look into the longer term future for Angela Rayner, and I've got a couple of suggestions. One of the moments I've best enjoyed in British politics was when you smacked down Dominic Raab, who had sneered at you for going to the opera, <laughs> and you used the following words, my advice to the Deputy Prime Minister is to cut out the snobbery and brush up on his opera. The marriage of Figaro is the story of a working-class woman who gets the better of a privileged but dim-witted villain. Um, uh, and it was... Um, a, a, a moment for the ages, that one. So looking into the long-term future, what's the likelihood you become an opera critic? <laughs> uh, uh, oh, this is a deal. My favourite one was when you took down. <laughs> oh, like like that, that YouTube, uh, I, I watch it all the time. It was my, one of my most famous moments as well, uh, your misogyny speech. So I uh, take great inspiration from that. Um, in terms of opera, look, I don't like opera. I went because my mate asked me to go. Because in, I'll be honest, I'll out myself right this minute. I've had 
I've been inundated with requests to go to operas. I'm much more of a rave girl. I like dance music. And, and, but, you know, I'll try anything once. And the guy who was, you know, he, he grew up near me, managed to get to Glyndebourne. It's a big thing for people in that environment yeah. to, to play there was a big moment for him. He's like, Andrew, I really want you to be there. So I was like, oh, okay. And then it's like hours and hours and hours. <laughs> I did it. I achieved it. I overcome it. Is it something I want to do on a regular basis? Probably not, it's not for me. But I do think it is that other people, it's not because of my class. All right. Why I don't like, or why I can't sit through an opera, it's probably because of my ADHD and I can't sit through for hours and end on anything. But um, I do, you know, I do think that people should try different things and there shouldn't be a, a cut off for people. One of the challenges we face at the moment is young people have less opportunity to try different things now, especially young people for, who grow up in poverty and more young people are growing up in poverty now than ever before and I think that we're poorer both in the arts and culture and in our economy and everything else if we don't let young people try new things. I, I say to young people like find something you're good at like it's really rubbish if you're doing a job that you don't like. There's loads of older people you know people my age now who have been pushed into being barristers or whatever else and they really hate it but they thought it'd be a job that paid them well and the parents thought this is a very respectable career. But actually, if you do something you enjoy and you push it, then you'll exceed in it. So I think giving young people opportunity to try different things and then whether that's the opera or whatever else it is, I think that it's criminal that we're restricting their opportunities. So I'm going to take opera critic off the long-term list. Let me, let me just try another one on the long-term future list. Labor has never had a woman leader in this country Number one, why do you think that is? And number two, anything you'd like to tell us tonight? Because we're, we're, not, we're not adverse to a worldwide scoop at the Global Institute for Women's Leadership. Um, well, I'm not adverse to giving them without accidentally realising I've done them, apparently. <laughs> so I don't know why we haven't had a woman leader yet. I mean, I've spoke to Yvette, I've spoke to Harriet and spoke to others and... I don't know, maybe part of the problem with it is that problem of the culture of Parliament at the moment. You have to surrender so much of your life. Us women in the 21st century, we want to think we can have it all, can't we? But the truth is, is that I've been absent a lot of the time for my young boys. Ironically, I feel like in some ways I was a better parent when I was 16 because I was there 24-7. I did, I did the lion's share of everything. Whereas it's took quite a cultural shift for me to not be there Monday to Thursday my children are in Manchester I'm not there for them I can't be there for them I can try and ring them in between a vote maybe but I'm not there for them so you do sacrifice quite a lot and until we make parliament more friendly in terms of work-life balance then I think we'll continually have this problem because as I said before women either have to choose to be more man than the men or they have to choose to sacrifice certain things that that they hold dear as well I think you know we will get a woman leader. Our talent is there. I think we're pushing that talent forward. Uh, whether it's me or whether it's someone else, I will push to make sure that there will be a female leader after care because I do think that's what the Labour Party needs. And whether that's me or whether it's another woman, then, then I don't care as long as we get there. And I think one of the important things is that feminism for me is about supporting other women and for for a long time I didn't really get that I didn't understand it and like I said before I've met women before that feel like you have to be more you have to push forward you have to be more resilient than anyone else and they don't really see the role of them to support other women whereas I think actually it's so important if you're a feminist 
to support other women. Even when I'm upset with another woman or criticising them, I, I choose the way in which I do it. I try to be a better critique. I try to be a better uh, fellow female on, on those issues because it's so hard trying to create those spaces so people fill it. And that's what I try and do and not protect my own sort of space, but try and open up spaces for other people. So never say never. I mean, Boris Johnson was so low bar. <laughs> that that imposter syndrome completely evaporated for me. And then, uh, because I thought, well, I mean, I'd like to think that we aim a bit higher than that for um, our prime ministers, but still it did prove to just about everyone in this country that anyone can be prime minister. <laughs> Might not be able to do a good job of it, but you can get there. So I will give him that credit if, if nothing else. Never say never, but most important for me, as it has been throughout my political career is being in the place where you think you'll make the most difference at that time and recognising what's right for you. Because other people might say, oh, that's good, you need to do that. But if you're not in that space, then don't feel you have to occupy it. You've got, you've got to balance that. You know, you can't have the pressure put on you as you've got to be that person. You've got to want to be that and you've got to feel that that's right for you as well. So it's about taking that leap when knowing that it's not just about you not having self-confidence, but also being self-aware about what you want to do and the resilience you have to, to take that forward. So I'll never say never, but who knows? If I think I can do it and I'm the right thing for the country at the time, then yeah, you better do it. I'm very thankful that my voice has held out at least well to this extent. I was worried uh, that, you know, part of this was going to have to be done in interpretive dance or I would have... Uh... <laughs> But can I ask you now, most importantly, uh, to join with me in thanking the remarkable Angela Rayner. Thank you. A podcast of one's own is created by the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London and our sister institute at the Australian National University, Canberra. Earnings from the podcast go back into funding for the Institute, furthering the work we do to create a world in which being a woman is no barrier to being a leader. Research and production for this podcast is by Becca Shepherd, Connie Blafari and Alina Ecott, with editing by Nick Hilton. If you have feedback or ideas on who you'd like to hear on the show, please email us at giwl at kcl.ac.uk. To stay up to date with the work of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, go to kcl.ac.uk forward slash G-I-W-L and sign up to our updates or follow us on social media at G-I-W-L Kings. Thanks for listening and we hope you'll join us next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.